0: Welcome to the Why Honors Community Podcast. Today's episode is with General Wesley Clark. Good afternoon, General. Hey, good afternoon, Aaron. Great to be with you. I yeah, appreciate being with you as well. General Wesley Clark retired in 2000 from his position as NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe, where he led NATO operations in the Balkans and managed NATO military and U.S. military engagement in some 89 countries. His military awards and decorations include the Ranger Tab, U.S. Defense Distinguished Service Medal, U.S. Army Distinguished Service Medal, Silver Star, Legion of Merit, Bronze Star Awards, and the Purple Heart. He has received the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom, U.S. Department of State Distinguished Service Award, Honorary Knighthoods from the British and Dutch governments, Commander in the French Legion of Honor, and some 20 additional foreign awards. Since his military retirement, he has been a businessman, author, and commentator. Since 2010, he has chaired his own boutique investment bank and Vera and has served on numerous public and private boards, including boards for major United States private equity firms. He has his own consulting company, Wesley K. Clark & Associates. Altogether, he has worked with more than 100 US and overseas companies in the energy infrastructure, security, and financial space as a board member, consultant, banker, or advisor. His work has taken him to Europe, China, Indonesia, Latin America, and Africa. He is currently on one publicly traded company board and several private boards. General Clark specializes in small companies and startups where his leadership skills and business experience bring the most value to entrepreneurial efforts. He has worked with wind, solar, electric motor, and battery companies, as well as in various consumer products. General Clark is a 1966 graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, where he graduated as valedictorian with an engineering degree and concentration in national security studies. Selected as a Rhodes Scholar, he attended Magdalen College, Oxford for two years and received his bachelor's and master's in philosophy, politics, and economics. He also served as White House fellow, 1975 to 76, in the Office of Management and Budget. He is a graduate of armor officer basic and advanced courses, the distinguished graduate of the US Army Command and General Staff College, 1975, where he received a master's of military arts and science and a 1983 graduate of the US National War College. He has received numerous honorary doctorate degrees. General Clark is a strong believer in public service. He he is the founding chairman of City Year Little Rock, a former member of the Little Rock Airport Commission, a director of the Atlantic Council, and works with various think tanks on important policy issues. In his last effort, he co-chaired the National Commission on Grid Resilience. General Clark, it's a real pleasure to have this opportunity to visit with you today and We've got a lot to discuss, obviously, and especially in the context of what's happening currently in our nation with this upcoming election. And I know, given your role uh, at, at such uh, the, the highest levels of military command in the European theater, you understand the context of a history there going back through the 20th century that has seen the horrors of what fascism uh, can bring to societies. and that unfortunately, is now again a pertinent issue, not only here in the United States, but in many other countries around the world, and I was wondering, in General, if you could kick us off here by commenting on what you're seeing from your perspective in terms of this uh, rise or new rise in fascism.
1: Well, first of all, thanks for the introduction. I hope there's a little time left to talk after all that, um, Aaron. Yeah, I'm concerned. We have a president who has authoritarian tendencies. And maybe he's joking, and maybe he just does it to, to make uh, controversial statements, but lots of people like it. Studies show that there's a strong minority of people in the United States who really, they either don't understand democracy or don't want democracy. They want somebody to get out there and, you know, force people to do what they want them to do. Um, that's sort of human nature, but that's what the United States Constitution was set up to prevent. And uh, what we're seeing is a slide into Authoritarianism, one-party control. Um, we saw it the other night. With, um, in fact, last night, I guess it was uh, Amy Coney Barrett was appointed to the and confirmed in the Supreme Court. She's hearing cases today. It's been less than a month, and uh, boom, she's in there. And there was nothing the Democrats could say or do. She's actually confirmed by, I guess, the slimmest majority of any Supreme Court justice in maybe 150 years. It's not a good sign for democracy, and, and this is what, really, that's what's at stake in this election. Are we going to have a democracy? We're going to have contending parties, different points of view, give and take. We're going to have checks and balances in the Constitution, or are we just going to have a leader that tweets out something that he hears and says, this is now my policy, and uh, if you don't like it, you know, not only will you leave, but I'll, I'll discredit you and try to destroy you and your family. Uh, That's not the way that we believe America should be. And um, hopefully, the American public, the voters, will express their views. It's a week from today.
0: Yeah, General. And of course, uh, we are going to be expediting the publishing of this episode. And so uh, it'll probably be within within 24 hours or so that we're going to be able to get this (laughs) one out. Uh, Thanks to the team at. Maybe we'll get a couple
1: of people to listen who either. I think everybody's made up their minds, really. Yeah. I mean, the ones who haven't, the undecided voters that I've been on with, they're all people who watch Fox News, and they don't necessarily like Trump, but they believe the Fox News mythology about Joe Biden. And um, and they think Vice President's a more manly man. I mean, sorry, that Trump is a more manly man with the makeup and the fake hair and all that stuff. And, um, and so... What we're hoping for is some of the people who watch your show haven't voted yet, and they will go and vote, and vote early if possible, and do not send in any mail-in ballot. It's too late. It's too late. Don't mail it in. It'll be wasted. Go in person to the polling place.
0: Yeah, that's that's really great advice. Bring the ballot with you. Go great. to the polling place. I love, yeah, I appreciate that, General. And, you know, the other day you and I were speaking about some of the backdrop to why we're seeing this rise in fascism. And I, I want to just pivot for a minute thinking about uh, things over in Europe. And as uh, I recently shared with you, I have a master's degree in, in German studies and did a relatively deep dive into what happened during the 1930s in Germany. And the horrors of the Second World War wrought uh, by the Nazi party were brought into power, essentially, through a democratic process. Sure, which sure. is Well, was of course, it, yeah.
1: it started with burning the Reichstag
0: down. Yeah.
1: Which was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It was done deliberately. At least that's the suspicion of most of the historians. And it paved the way for the kind of confusion that led to a new government. In, in Italy, fascist Mussolini was brought into power democratically. So the fact that democracy worked and put someone in, democracy can't work unless that person leaves when he's voted out, and unless there's a system that allows contending opponents, viewpoints, and a free and fair election. And what we've got in Russia today, of course, is not free and fair elections. We just saw Uh, Alex Navalny poisoned with nerve agent that he believes was put on his clothing. He just happened to touch a glass, and that's why they were able to get it out of the glass. He thinks it was put in his his, his closet. And the Novichok nerve agent is a new nerve agent. It's a violation of the Prevention of Chemical Warfare Treaty. So it's illegal by international law. Um, no new weapons were supposed to be uh, developed and existing were supposed to be destroyed. So Putin's violated that and he's using it to knock off his opponents. Yeah, It's it's a dangerous world right now. And the United States has historically been an island of of safety, of of openness, of transparency, of where people could say what they thought and believed and, and not be fearful of
0: it. That's what's at risk in this election. What are you seeing out there that is giving you some hope that our voters and our institutions will potentially withstand uh, this current onslaught? Well, there's lots of early voting, and that early
1: voting is not ballots. I mean, that's people going to polls. So, I mean, they're they're, they're not – that's about half of the total vote has been requested for early ballots. But, um, but some of those people are going to the polls and voting anyway, so that's hopeful. We know most of those people voting earlier are Democrats. So that's a good thing. Um, one of the things I like is uh, the recent spate of news stories which have undercut the president. So um, there's a story by the FBI that uh, you know there's no truth about any of these rumors about Hunter Biden. <laughs> Vladimir Putin doesn't even believe the rumors, apparently. And uh, the Wall Street Journal said, uh, that Trump's tariffs, that, that's baloney. Those tariffs have not helped America. And there's another story in the Wall Street Journal that says, hey, those industrial jobs he promised, they didn't come back. So at the level of people who know the facts and read, there's plenty of evidence out there for them to look at, say, uh, President Trump's policies. It's not only this objectionable personality, it's not only that he's an authoritarian, and a threat to democracy, but his policies don't work.
0: Yeah, right. Yep yeah. on on the on their face and, and with the facts, it's uh, not looking good. And you know, I'm I'm curious, given the role that the United States has played in the world uh, over the last at least half century as a stabilizing force and a democratizing force. It, assuming that we see a new president out of this election. What does it take to restore our stature and reputation in, in the global community? First of all, I
1: think you have to restore greater harmony in American politics. Uh, I think, you know, you're we're, we're like kneecapped right now because there's so much friction and anger. And I expect that to continue for a while after the election. And I don't, don't think you can necessarily appease it by simply going to the Republicans in Congress and saying, please work with me and up uh, And I'll give you, you know, six or nine months and uh, I'm sure you'll come around and be nice. I think it has to start by really some strong economic policies that reach out to um, the actually to the white working men and women in the northeast states who have uh, suffered for 30 years as a result of trade dislocations and, um, and are not brought into the economic system. So I think you've got to start by rebuilding the economy. You've got to figure there's going to be political opposition. When America starts growing jobs then and, and returning to um, a proactive economic policy with government leadership, investment in infrastructure, um, and new technologies, well, people around the world are going to sit up and take notice. Some of my friends would come in from overseas and they'd say, gee, I was just in Beijing in a beautiful airport. I just landed at LaGuardia. I thought I was in a third world country. And of course, LaGuardia is being fixed. But uh, it's a slow, slow process. And what's really happened to us, Aaron, um, and you're a student of history. I mean, when Ronald Reagan came in, he made a joke, many jokes about government. He was the lead of the sort of, let's delegitimate government leadership, bunch of you know, self-righteous bureaucrats in Washington. And the jokes were like, hey, you know, the 13 worst words in the English language are, I'm from government and I'm here to help. And people would say, oh, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah, I got inspected by the Environmental Protection Agency or the uh, Office of Safety and Health. And uh, yeah, I didn't, (laughs) that's really funny. And, uh, or he'd say, government's like a baby. You know, you put food in at the top and uh, you know what comes out at the bottom. And I mean, it's it was funny. It was dead serious. And the people that followed him have taken it further and further and further. So till we got a man like President Trump, who when he's asked about COVID and said, do you take any responsibility for the U.S. government's response? He says, I, I take no responsibility. What kind of a president is that? He wants to leave it to the governors. He wants to blame cities. He wants to blame the the opposing party. He's the president of the United States. He's responsible. But, of course, he's in a party that's for 40 years delegitimized the role of the federal government. So I think the start of restoring national leadership abroad is to restore the credibility of the United States government.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And of course, all of this is taking place with the backdrop of the climate crisis and the ecological and biological crisis that we're facing as a global community. And that presents, of course, massive challenges as well as opportunities. And I suspect you may have some ideas about what this infrastructure technology and job creation policy framework might look like and could look like in the near term.
1: Well, first of all, let me say, the climate crisis is real and it's actually more urgent than we believe. You know, at every stage in the climate modeling, we've underestimated the actual impact. We've tried to be conservative. Let's not be alarmist. Let's don't scare people. Let's don't be radical. And yet, if you look at the radical computations out there, I saw one today that shows that by 2026, you could have runaway global warming with a five degree centigrade change because the positive feedback mechanisms. Um, there's more heat in the atmosphere, therefore there's more water vapor. Water vapor itself is a, uh, is a, a warming agent. It reflects the infrared radiation, boom. And so um, I don't think that extreme scenario is possible, but I do think that um, actually the people who question science are probably right but they're in the wrong direction. The science has pretty clearly established that this climate change is man-made. We're at the bottom of a solar cycle. There's no extra solar energy coming out. We should be in a cooling phase uh, in terms of the Earth's position in orbit, and, but, but, but we're not. And, and, and This is a really uh, urgent issue. Now, what can we do about it? Well, first of all, you have to understand why we're here because um, you're in a government that's basically life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what we said in the United States. But (laughs) founding fathers read John Locke in political philosophy. He said it's life, liberty, and property. They didn't want the king expropriating their property. In other words, it's, it's about the acquisition of wealth. And so we've got big companies in the United States They're very powerful and they have an extraordinary influence on government. And those companies are in the energy business. And um, it's very hard to get them to change because they're focused on maximizing profits from what their specialty is. Not bad people. These aren't bad people that go to work in the oil industry or utility industry or automobile industry. They're just trying to earn a living, take care of their families, put their education to work and grow up and be a good citizen for most of the cases, but it's the institutional pressures. So we know we're operating against this. It's a real drag, and yet there are dozens of new technologies out there, Aaron. Everything from ways to enhance the efficiency of solar panels to um, ways to move power, ways to conduct electrolysis with a third as much energy requirement, ways to, take uh, salt water and convert it into fresh water and use it. I mean, there's just so many different technologies. And yet, and right now, there's a lot of money chasing these renewable energy technologies because the investment community has learned that um, they, they're going to have to find ways to employ the money, they, despite the fact that so many people in this country haven't gotten wealthier and that the income in distribution is so inequitable. We're sloshing with money. It doesn't know what to do with itself. You can't leave it in a bank account because you're not going to get 5% on it. So you can't buy US Treasuries because you're not even going to get 1%. So what are you going to do with that money? So my friends on Wall Street are telling me about these, what they call a SPAC, a SPAC, a Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. And they're they're out combing the marketplace for ways to deploy 100 million, 200, 300, 500 million. Um, that's good, uh, but depending on how they use it and what their requirements are, they will drive up the price of renewable assets. Yeah. It's not clear that they will invest in the startups and the new technologies that might be too risky. But but it's 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 movement. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It shows that the financial sector is aware of the urgency of the problem
0: how do how do spacs differ from uh, private equity funds in their behavior in the marketplace
1: so a spac is a it's a pool of money and uh, investors put it in and they, uh, they they there's a group that forms the spac they go to the big banks and say um, you know if you will give me 300 million dollars uh, i'm a very good experienced investor and i will Deployed for you. Uh-huh. Now, in return, I want like, you know, 10%, 15% of the upside. Yeah. And, um, but I can't tell you what I'm going to invest in because it wouldn't be a SPAC if I did that uh-huh. under, the, under the Securities Exchange Commission okay. uh, regulations. But, but they say, but, but, but give me six months. And then if you don't, when I bring it to you, you can vote on it. And if you don't like what I'm proposing, you can get your money back. Very and I'll pay and I'll pay you yeah. if I don't do a good job.
0: So um, that's what the SPAC, the spac is. So this is kind of like the next generation, and it's not quite as fat as the uh, two and twenty terms we saw with a lot of the hedge funds in the last. Oh,
1: it might be, it might be, even might be. the same thing. It's just a different yeah. way of doing it.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Well, I you know I'm I'm so curious too, given that you do so much in the, with early stage and uh, entrepreneurial organizations and leaders and your work in the military obviously is leading one of the largest bodies in the world with thousands upon thousands of people what was it like making that transition from the you know big business if we can call it that of the United States military into the realm of the smaller more nimble uh, early stage companies
1: well i had to learn business uh-huh. and business is a little bit different than the military even though you know in the military you have a budget you have people that work for you, um, but you can't in the military, you're in a government system. And so you don't own that company. Yeah. You don't just go into work one day and say to someone, I'm reorganizing and, uh, I don't need you. Uh, have a good life. You Can't do that in the military. Um, I had an argument once with, um, the man who was the owner of the Louisville courier journal. <clears throat> we were at a dinner and he said, I was a four star general. He said, general, who do you think has the most power, you or me? I was still in uniform. I said, well, uh, you know, I'm in the military. We, If we give the order, people will risk their lives and go into combat. He said, yeah, that's true. He said, I can't order anybody to do that, but I can fire them. And I can keep them from getting another job. I thought, good God, really? And so that's one of the differences. The other difference, of course, is that in the military, you don't actually have to um, earn your budget. We call it a budget. It's like a household budget where you your mom gives you an allowance and says, okay, don't spend it all in one place. In the military, you're given a certain amount of money you have to use. In business, you have to earn those revenues. So I had to learn that process and um, and all the wrinkles to it. So that's why... It's been so exciting to be in the private sector and see that at play. And I've been with some big companies, too. Yeah, You learn it in the big companies. But most of the big companies, they've got great leadership. They know what they're doing. Um, they don't really – when they want a board, sometimes they need it, but sometimes it's there for window dressing. It's there to assure the investors that there's some oversight that the investors can't exercise so they put these named people in and they hold them accountable to the investors it's a sort of in loco parentis you know for the CEO but um, in these small companies you've got people who are really they really need help they need relationships they need coaching um, they need to know about money and banking so
0: pretty exciting yeah it really is well one of the topics that we spend a lot of time focusing on here at the why on earth community is leadership and community leadership in particular and i'd love to hear your perspective on what's needed in these times in terms of leadership at all different levels of society whether in the corporate realm or the uh, realm of, of community service and ngos what, what do you see as the defining characteristics of the types of leaders that we need more of today
1: well i'm not going to tell you do honor country Right. Because that's a good watchword for military people, but it doesn't translate that easily into the private sector or government or NGO sector. Let me put it this way. Here's what I think leadership's about. Leadership's about service to others. Yeah. So to do that, you have to first uh, gain their trust. So you can do that by the hiring process. You can do that by your resume. You can do that by the way you carry yourself and talk to people. So it's about gaining trust. Um, It's then a matter of establishing your legitimacy. You have to either know or learn quickly the elements and the factors and the environment and the processes with which you're working and leading people. Um, If you're constantly um, in the dark, <laughs> they may have trusted the hiring process. You may have come in with a good reputation, but you—if you make a bunch of dumb statements, if you act like uh, you never heard where you know Tokyo is located, or you—you you, you didn't know uh, about Pearl Harbor—you lose your legitimacy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then it's a matter of taking responsibility the right way. The—the the leader is responsible for everything the organization does so you can't be blaming people especially not publicly every time something goes wrong you have to ask yourself what happened now you have to as a leader delegate authority to members of your team to make decisions to act in their own spheres of responsibility but you're the ultimately responsible party So um, you have to accept that responsibility. Then you need a strategy. You have to have an idea of where you're going with the organization. How does it do its mission? What kind of service is it going to provide? And how do you get it there? And then you have to monitor, know the details, and modify the strategy for success. That's the Basically, those are the steps in, in leadership.
0: That's great. And I, they,
1: work, they work in the military as well
0: as in sure. the
1: private sector or government or NGO.
0: Yeah, as a uh, an entrepreneur myself and a consultant who works some with other organizations, that modifying step that, that creates that loop of running back through the process over and over again is, is one that intrigues me quite a bit because, of course, We're living in a world where technologies are rapidly changing, rules of the game are often changing, uh, new opportunities and uh, threats and risks emerge quite quickly. So that ability to be agile, I suppose, is essential, right? Yep. Well, you know, what you see in
1: private organizations is, first of all, you see a lot of tendency to financialize the leadership. Because when you're sitting around in a company and the guy says, oh, I know how we can make more money on that. Do A, B, and C. He's the expert at the money, and the money is the ultimate. You know, it's the ultimate um, output of the company. So if you're not earning money, you're not going to be in business very long. But I like companies where the top people are technically competent, that they've come up through the operations route or the technology route, not just the financial route in the company. Now, on the other end of it, at the startup stage, usually you have technology people. And there you have have to be careful because um, these people often don't understand um, how to bring other people together. They often love their technology so much, they don't want to let it out the door. And um, so how to convert that technology, how to protect it, but at the same time grow a company how to take investors in and so forth.
0: That's that's the missing piece at that level. Yeah. Yeah, that's great to hear about. Let me uh, remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with General Wesley Clark. I wanna give a quick shout out actually, speaking of some companies and organizations making a difference uh, to some of our sponsors and supporters. And this includes uh, Earth Coast Productions, the Litch Family Foundation, Alpine Botanicals, Purium, Earth Hero, Vera Herbals, Growing Spaces, Soil Works, Earth Water Press, 1% for the Planet, Dr. Bronner's, and Wele Waters. And I uh, also want to give a shout out to all of our individual monthly supporters out there in the Why on Earth community who have joined our monthly giving program. And if you haven't yet joined and you would like to, you can go to whyonearth.org and and click on the donate button and set up the uh, contribution you'd like to make on a monthly basis. So a great deal of gratitude to everybody making this podcast series possible, as well as our Why On Earth community mobilization work for stewardship, regeneration, and sustainability. And uh, General, I want to, again, thank you for Uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule to visit with us. And uh, we've got a few more minutes before we need to sign off. And I want to ask you, given that that you've been focusing so much on technology as it relates to helping address some of the climate crisis challenges that we're facing, a two-part question. A, what technologies are you most excited about at the moment? And then B, Do you think that it's technology itself that is gonna get us uh, to where we wanna be as a society or is there something else besides technology we need to be thinking about?
1: Well, I I think there's a long way to go in solar. I like um, the hydrogen generation technologies. We're gonna need some transition fuels. So we're not gonna do this overnight, no matter how urgent it is. It may take us 50 years to get off hydrocarbons. I know we say carbon neutral, Um, I like technologies, therefore, that pull carbon out of the atmosphere. That's one of the things we're going to have to do to make this successful. It's not just about not using carbon. It's about taking what's up there and pulling it down. And then I also like um, the kinds of technologies that will take the, let us use carbon and then take the carbon out of the exhaust stream. And there are technologies like that. So, so generate energy, and power without carbon. If you use carbon, take it out of the exhaust gases, uh, and then pull greenhouse gases like methane and carbon out of the atmosphere. Those are the three sets of technologies. There's a lot of work being done in this, but um, you have to um, you have to have financial support to take the technology and make it real. And um, you can't have the the government has to provide that support but it can't provide it on with the expectation that every government investment's gonna be successful. So Solyndra was a really bad example, and it was used politically to destroy the process. But uh, nobody can qualify. So you're always gonna have some missteps in this, yeah. and you have to look at, at this there's a, a, a lot of thought right now about how the government does business. And one of the one of the mistakes we've made over the last forty years in this country is we put government investment into things, but we let the private sector have all the profit mm-hmm. and they don't give the dividends back to the public sector. You know the internet, uh, microelectronics, uh, lasers, all that stuff was con- it was all global positioning. It was all done by the government, and yet, all these companies start up and they use it. Google and um, and all the internet companies—they're not paying the U.S. government for that. They should. The U.S. government should have had a, had a stake in those companies. Um, in the same, it's the same thing in the health space. The NIH sponsors research. People that do it get to patent it, and then they keep other people from using it, and the government gets nothing. So, as we move forward, we have to think about this. We think about this the right way, then this will help us deal with the larger social issues of income distribution and wealth maldistribution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which obviously uh, has tremendous impacts on people all over the place, and mm-hmm. also our our society itself as a whole. Right. Right. Well, General, I uh, am so grateful we have this opportunity to speak with you today, and I just I want to make sure before we close out to uh, open it up to you and uh, if there's anything in particular you'd like to say to our why on earth community audience uh, or anything else you'd like to share about the work you're doing it would be great to hear that
1: well i think the big thing the message i'd like to leave with your audience is just the importance of this election yeah. and um and um, and the work after the election we have to keep american democracy fresh and alive we need young people engaged we need to make sure the government works for us. I don't mean George W. Bush like, I'm going to give you back your money. I mean real leadership like FDR did, like Kennedy did with the with the space program. Um, not the kind of leadership that says, oh, the government, why uh, bunch you? I want the best government. I want young people to go into government, to be confident that they're serving the public. You don't have to stay in it your whole career, but to be there and... Be a public servant is a noble occupation, and you should do that in uniform or out of uniform. And to pay attention to the larger trends of politics and concerns in the country. Be a good citizen. Take your education and use it, and grow throughout your lifetime so you have a lifetime of service to others.
0: Absolutely beautiful. I'm just writing a couple of uh, notes here. And well, you got them on. You got them on tape. This is true. This is true, General. Yes, and uh, I'll I'll do a little summary in our show notes when we publish this. Um, well, thank you so much, General Clark, for visiting with us. It's really appreciated. Aaron, thank you. Been a pleasure. Thank you.
2: The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability Podcast Series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code whyonearth